welcome to the Blood Brothers podcast. You are, uh, we are here tonight with myself, Sean Coleman, Mr. Chris McDonald, and Mr. Rob Parker. Hello. And we are joined Hello. in our guest seat this evening by Mr. Christopher Brookmeyer, who is an author of uh, inimitable uh, novels that we uh, both love and, and adore, and is here to talk to us this evening about the cut. But will doubtless talk to us about every single other one. <laughs> As we Not every single him. other one. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> there's 26 now. You know, I've got to get to my yeah. bed. It's... I was going to say know, yeah, we, do, we do have we One have point. this pen for 17 hours, right? So <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's an all it's an overnight booking. This recording, I think, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's what they said. <laughs> um, Chris, welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, it, just before we started. Rob was saying um, the first uh, crime book he'd bought was um, a tale etched in. He's holding it up right now. <laughs> a tale yeah, I am. Yeah, holding like it pencil. up right now. Yeah. Um, and and I was and I countered with um, I fell in love with uh, all fun and games until somebody loses a knife. Uh, but also, where did, where in that lineage did um, a big boy did it and ran away? Was that? Um, it was before that. It was that. It was two thousand and one. Um, See, well, I, I, I think when it was, yeah, I, I should easily remember that it was published in 2001. I started writing it uh, in 2000 and it was first published in Australia. Um, I, it was published there ahead of the everywhere else because I was going over to Australia and New Zealand to do a couple of festivals. And so the, the, um, the C formats, a trade paperback export formats, were the ones that were exported out there uh, rather than the hardbacks. And they went out there in, it was like August, I think. Uh, and it all went down fine. And, but they, they had a, a tagline on the back that said, terrorism, it's the new rock and roll. Yeah, I remember was, it. This was, um, <laughs> I remember it. <laughs> which uh, seemed like a really good idea at the time. Um, and was time hideously being, inappropriate. Yes, oh, August 2001, uh, and oh, goodness, it was mate. slated for publication late September 2001, <laughs> and um, so the entire print run had to be, the hardbacks had to be rejacketed, which was less complex than all the C formats, which had to have their jackets ripped off, um, and they, they put a new back on it, so you can actually see one, of, if, if anyone's got one of the original print run um, there's a weird kind of double line on the, the just to the inside of the spine uh, that shows where they, they cut and put a, a different back cover on it. have to go and look. Um, very rapidly in the space of about a fortnight. And the thing is, I, I came up with this um, tagline like way back when I was writing the book. And it was because it's about someone who's a kind of wannabe rock star um, and someone who essentially, I mean, it was... It, Something I read when I was a kid, um, I read an interview with Joe Strummer and he was talking about um, things like the Bader-Meinhof gang and this kind of rock and roll trip that he thought a lot of the, the left-wing terrorists were on in the 70s. <laughs> and so I had this thing in my head, yeah, terrorism is the new rock and roll with people who were on a kind of massive power trip. People like David Koresh um, and uh, Charles Manson, things like that. And that's what I was alluding to. Uh, and it sounded really cool as a tagline. Everyone loved <laughs> yeah. it, obviously. Um, until about two o'clock in the afternoon uh, of September 11, 2001, uh, and at which point there was crisis phone calls coming in. So, yeah, that that's 
Yeah, I should remember immediately that it was uh, 2001, that novel. Was- yeah. <laughs> yeah. Does that mean that, they, that there's these, these copies knocking about? Were, did, ever, did any actually slip the net that have that original tagline on the back? Oh, yeah, because there was loads of them uh, sold in Australia. Uh, oh, right, Zealand, right. Um, that, because I'd been over-promoting it. So, yeah, of course, still, yeah. Every so often someone will turn up with one at an event. And you sign it extra special and go, I didn't mean that. That was only joking. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a little arrow. Please <laughs> excuse this part. That's incredible. <laughs> but nobody could have predicted that, surely. <laughs> yes, no, no. I just, um, I remember reading them and I, a, a bit like Rob had been in a, in a bit of a reading slump and I'd, I was doing, I'd, I'd just finished doing my, Oh, no, I'd had long, I don't know what I'm talking about. I'd long finished doing my degree in screenwriting, but I was a bit sort of funked out with this sort of formulaic writing. And then I, and for some, I think it might've even been the cover. Um, and for some reason I picked up your book. Um, uh, it's all fun and games until somebody loses an eye and just, and, and started reading and just thought, and this is, this is what it's all about. This is writing. This is brilliant. I love it. It was that sort of bullshit. You're going to read Glaswegian whether you want to or not, and it's funny and it's criminal and it's and it's you know I just I absolutely loved it, and I fell in love with your writing then, and I, I don't think that's changed to now. And I know your writing style and your your characterization, everything's changed, but it's just you can feel that flow. You can feel that that person. From back oh, then. I always take it as a huge compliment if, if someone said they were not reading for a while when that because every so often I've met someone who say they, they didn't read anything after school because um, yeah. I, I think when I was at school I always described the the prescribed reading list at the time as a, a kind of prescription to put kids off reading. Yeah, it, it was it was it was always when I was growing up it was always stuff that was very worthy. Yeah, um, and it was you know sort of improving literature and it wasn't going to give anyone the idea that literature was something for fun that it you know to my mind books were in the same category as movies tv shows video games you know and, and so they were they were a source of, of great entertainment and escapism and that is not the impression that some of my classmates got mm. um, and so every so often i'll meet someone who had that kind of experience and and it's the great compliment if someone says well i read one of your books and, and they didn't i didn't realize a book could be like that and by that they meant enjoyable you know rather than <laughs> yes. something kind of <laughs> grim and worthy and, and uh, all those things that education I, unfortunately can be. I think, for, I think I, for me it had been that I'd been I'd done sort of three years of a screenwriting degree and then I was doing a master's in script, in script writing for film and tv and it was all just like and this and this has got to be like that and then this is and it's all just perfunctory and and it's great for getting how to hone plot and all of that kind of nonsense but it just ripped the heart out of writing for mm, me and um and what was interesting about your books was you just went fuck it this is a story and i'm telling it and i love that <laughs> <laughs> just, i absolutely fell yeah. in love with it I, I think um i remember as a, a student myself um saving certain books until all the essays were in and the term was over and, and it was something that I was just going to read for its own pleasure and entertainment yeah. and not for not to be in any way analysed or deconstructed um, and, and the one I always remember was that I was saving uh, was 
Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency by Douglas Adams back in about 1987, Mm. I think it was. Um, And that didn't disappoint. We haven't even got onto the cut yet, but I just wanted to add to that and ask for Chris's opinion on this. But um, the... I, I go to as many schools as I can, um, try to get kids in, in the region I'm in, the Northwest, um, mm. into reading and into writing and believing that you can be from any sort of background and enjoy both of those things. Um, because I don't think, certainly growing up myself, I didn't feel like it was accessible. Um, and I think we're on the cusp of something with similar to that, that people didn't know that, like we were talking about People didn't know that reading could be enjoyable. I think now people uh, don't know that writing can be enjoyable at all. And in fact, I think the more that I go to schools, um, the more that the joy of creation is being sucked right out, right there in the classroom as well. And I'd love to get Chris mm. McDonald's take on this. But like when I when I say to children stuff like, okay, kids, what's what's in a story? You know, and they, the stuff they come out with is so... Oh, banal and, and you know, like uh, fronted adverbials, sir. You know, that kind of thing, like, come on, you know, where's the fun of just making stuff up and having a good time and stuff like that? What the fuck is the fronted adverbial? (laughs) I don't know, but it's like, you know, I mean, um, have you, I'll ask you, Chris, have you ever, you know, when you've sat down to write something, have you ever counted how many fronted adverbials have gone into it? (laughs) I have absolutely no notion. I keep seeing reference to this stuff. I don't know what a fronted adverbial is. Exactly. I wouldn't Um, know a fronted adverbial if it came and kicked me in the front at adverbials. (laughs) (laughs) There was a moment in the mid nineties um, when, really, in in the, the the aftermath of Train Spotting first being published, that suddenly there was people from all sorts of backgrounds feeling like their voices were legitimate, their accents were legitimate, and the type of stories they wanted to tell were legitimate for literature. Um, and it fueled a, a real explosion of kind of vernacular type literature, but not just that. It made, whether it was just people writing short stories at home, people did feel legitimized to just have a go. And I think they, they got pleasure out of seeing the language they like to use, the slang they like to use. Because at school, when I was growing up, it was kind of like a, an exercise in trying to drive the slang terms out of you. Whereas um, what's needed is to say, no, that's language, that's evolving language, that's how you... You tell stories. That's how you you write, uh, because people think writing is about flowery prose, or you know, or, or mm-hmm. writing a, a specific type of writing. So, unfortunately, that I think that that moment it, it's not passed altogether. But you know, there was a great flowering of literature uh, as a result of it, and obviously, um, it's, I don't think it's, it's not the same in Scotland in terms of the education. Uh, principles, but certainly everything I'm, I'm getting the impression they're trying very hard to drive all creativity out of the classrooms. And, <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> in case anybody has an idea that's a subversive. Oh, you know, interestingly, so, yeah. like when I was uh, when I was growing up, they they did that with art. Like, or art had to be a certain thing, and they'd give you these topics. And if you went anywhere off piste and didn't do a still life, but did a sort of abstract, and they're like, "Oh, that's not what we asked for." And it's like, you know, where in the brief did it say still life? But because you said a jug and two vases and, and, and I've drawn some jugs, that's not what we want now for... Uh, uh, <laughs> sorry, sorry. I wasn't I, I, honestly, My mind went there no, not when you brain. said you've drawn some jugs. Sorry. <laughs> potty brain. Unbelievable. Because <laughs> actually, that, just, this is actually... I know it's, it's me being puerile, but it does kind of feed into what I was talking about, about encouraging uh, kids... Um, 
and and it might be that, that what they find puerile is the thing they want to create. Yeah. Yes. And I remember I, I got into trouble at school because I, I was writing a, a short story for English and um, I wrote, I was very bloody minded. I used to write, um, I, I hated censoring myself. And on just to prove the point, I, I wrote two versions of a short story. And it wasn't even that short. It was like a very, very long essay assignment. Um, but I'd written this kind of espionage story and I didn't want it sort of tamed by having to use uh, censored language. So I, this is how bloody-minded I was. I wrote the whole thing out longhand twice. Uh, <laughs> one with the, the, the acceptable version and one the the version that had all the swearing in it and all sorts of other things <laughs> in it. And I submitted them both to my teacher and, and explained why I was doing it. I said, you know, here's the version that will be acceptable um, to the school, but here's the version that I would like to be read. And she just discarded the, the sort of clean one uh, and away with it. But she, she then came out and said this was the best, the best um, essay I'd written and it was the best thing she'd read in a long time. And she said, can I hang on to it and give it to the head of the department? And she did, but the problem was it's when she gave it to the head of the department, she phrased it really badly. She said, I think you should take a look at this. And that's all she said. Didn't, didn't say, I, I think you should take a look at this. It's really good. It's the best so thing I've ever hands read. Over, hands over this essay, that, that this, this short story that is not only full of swearing, there's actually a, at one point a reference to necrophilia, um, which did not go down well in a West of Scotland Catholic school. Uh, but what was worse was that everyone found out about this. And so all the guys, and, and most of the guys were getting all excited in the class, the guys who paid no attention to these things, they were all saying, oh, well, if I'm writing the next essay question, I'm writing loads of swearing, and I'm going to write a story that's full of fuck this and cunt that. And this freaked out the English department as well. They said, well, if we let you away with it, we'll have to let everyone away with it. And I'm thinking, has it not actually occurred to you this is the first time you've ever heard some of these kids talk with enthusiasm about the prospect of writing? You are so right. You're so right, man. No, of course not. That's that's not where it went. (laughs) <laughs> oh, I, I think um, when I when I it's amazing that because I try to let them I, I've developed this workshop thing that I do and I try to let them just go and do whatever you want and then we create a story on the spot and you would be like the directions this goes in um, and so the, in there they want to do it like you said you know like if you can find that kernel of passion and some of the story ideas that have been like that have come out I mean like some of them have been like well, I'm stealing that, you know, <laughs> get, get That's home. What supposed um, to be there for, Rob. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. It's not. <laughs> but um, oh, no, it's, it's absolutely mad. Um, but and then you do get, yes, you do get a glut of poop stuff, definitely. They always want, uh, I think a, a personal favourite was two WWF wrestlers um, in a pooping competition on Mars. Was a... <laughs> It was a one, huge highlight. Of my what age group? What age group are you working with? Uh, this this kid was seven, I think. Um, Fair but, um, yeah, poop is high I, in the in the seven year old's repertoire. Yeah, well, I, I, it's then when you get into the confusing years of teenage life that I, that's when I get thrown and I'm off kilter. So I've got no background in poetry whatsoever, but I was asked to run a poetry thing, and this kid put his hand up and said, um, "You know, we just I talked it through with him. Just say, go from your heart, go with whatever you want, whatever feels good. You know, try and find a little rhythm within yourself." Um, and he said, "I'd like to read it out." And he read out, and it was pure filth. I mean, it was <laughs> it was just absolute filth. And it was it was called my um, my biscuit, and it was about you know I I. I dunk you in my hotspot. 
and and um i put yeah i i um you slow i was it was i can't even i can't even say it, but about warm fluid sliding everywhere was the the main context here and it <laughs> was that just, reminds um, me of, i had uh, to leave i had to go like i can't you're doing so well man i gotta go though <laughs> that, that reminds me of the first uh, the first week of homeschooling i did with uh, with my girlfriend's kids and we were um the 12 year old is in his first year at, at, at high school and he came down we were all sitting at the same table as the eight-year-old the sister's there and he says uh, we've got the science quiz but i i don't want to do it in front of front of my sister oh, i'm like come on there's any science come on what, what are we doing she's doing flowers what are you doing <laughs> and he just showed me and they basically had a whole bunch of little cards that you had to cut out and then and then rearrange you know the man slides his into the women's and so and because we had to do it all in the same room we basically came up with all sorts of euphemisms like the man drives his car into the women's garage repeatedly <laughs> until he's parked it correctly and then the car leaks a little <laughs> like, oh god. god please don't answer please don't oh, answer me. the science quiz like this this is going to be the worst <laughs> thing that's ever happened in your school career is it right we'll, we'll go downstairs to the office and we'll talk about this seriously because <laughs> i can't have the the car driving metaphor going on and on but well, no, yeah. no, we could, that could derail the the, the young man permanently. Couldn't derail it. Um, so, I mean, we've we've uh, the cut, Chris. Yes. <laughs> See, this uh, is what happens when Chris McDonald leaves the environment. We just go yes. into random freefall, and we haven't got well, we a teacher. Excited. Like, I get excited we about talking a teacher to, to an author I admire. You know, I get really excited about that. But um, so, yes, the cut. Could you tell us a little bit about the cut, please, Chris? Yeah, uh, well, it's about a woman called Millicent Spark, who's a 72-year-old uh, ex-con and actually a suicidal 72-year-old ex-con uh, who has kind of lost all of the her will to live, essentially. She can't readjust to life on the outside. She serves 25 years in prison and... Um, She's unable to adjust to life outside and she's thinking about killing herself uh, until she kind of rediscovers her joy of life um, through a relationship with her new 18-year-old flatmate who's a student. And or when I say they rediscovers the joy of life through the, the two of them investigating the mystery behind the murder for which she was convicted back in the 90s. And that mystery concerns the legend of a lost horror film a film that was never released. It was the legend said that it was it was so disturbing and so terrifying that the producers didn't want to release it, and they they burned the negative in the presence of a priest. Uh, and and so there's this legend legends around this missing film, uh, including the fact that as a legend that anyone who saw it died. That and the the director committed suicide. The producer uh, was was missing, presumed drowned. Another uh, person involved was murdered. The a distributor was. Threw in front of a threw himself in front of a train, and Millicent Spark, who was the makeup special effects artist, she ended up in prison for murder. So there's all these things associated with this mysterious movie, but really it's about someone discovering that even though she's lost 25 years to jail, that there's still life in front of her, that life is still worth living. So it's about her re rediscovering her optimism, and it's about Jerry, the student, uh, getting over his sense of profound imposter syndrome 
he's a working class kid who's gone to university and doesn't think he belongs because everyone else there is posher than him, more confident than him, speaks better than him. And he's just waiting to get flung out and he's starting to self-sabotage. You know, he's so he, he's a he's got a, a sort of petty criminal background and he's starting to slip back into that and he realises a part of him is putting himself in a position where he'll get flung out because that way it's not his decision until he has to go and live with Millicent. And it's my, my wife uh, gave me the idea um, by telling me about a project in Scandinavia whereby um, students get cheap, good accommodation by um, going to live with older people. I've read about they own, yeah, yeah, they they they'll offer this free accommodation. And it's so that there's this um, continuing connection between the generations so they get cheap accommodation. They're not there to, to be at the service of the, the people they're living with. They're just there to spend a certain amount of time with them. And it's one of those things, you hear this idea and immediately think, wow, imagine like this cross-generation relationship. They team up to fight crime. You know, that's the first thing, <laughs> first thing is out of my head. And so it's uh, stuck with me for a while. And, and, and I thought, well, what would be the story about a, a, that, that would bind these two people? And I, that's why I came up with the idea of someone who had lost everything. In a way, lost the best years of her life. And also, I always try and find a vehicle to write about stuff that I'm passionate about. Mm. Um, so that's why it's about exploitation cinema and horror movies and going back to the 80s and 90s. And in fact, beyond that, all the way back to like the Italian Gialli cinema as well. No way. That's amazing. I, uh, is, that, is that something that, you know, personally you're into, Chris, the, the horror I, movies and stuff? I'm not like a, a sort of aficionado really, but um, I mean, I grew up, in the eighties were the part of the generation that was first to get home video. And we got VCRs and there was, it was that generation when there was um, not only were were we given access to home video, it was unregulated for this kind of glorious period Mm. um, because the, the, the current legislation didn't cover a lot of stuff when videos first started appearing. So we all just watched horror films because these were the films you couldn't have got in to see at the cinema if you were yeah. 13. So there was so much of a, a sort of trade in pirated horror movies, which you saw sixth generation copies. It was really fuzzy. Uh, and <laughs> yeah. and literally, do you remember yeah. when it would just be like... Blah, 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 blah. Oh, yeah, the, and um, no matter and how much you like, played with the tracking button, well, that, but you also, you'd work. know something <laughs> horrible was about to happen because it did that. And yeah. that's because people had replayed the horrible bit so yes, many yeah, times. yeah. Oh, when you knew something it, yeah. sexy was going to happen, it was just... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but yes, that too. <laughs> I just, I, rem- I remember um, a time when uh, we, we didn't have a VCR in the house, but um, you could rent the VCR machine from the video shop at the same time as you rented your tapes. Oh, wow. And then you'd bring it back because, no, because, you know, we didn't have a VCR, but you could rent the machine and then, like, it's huge, like a bloody suitcase. <laughs> the whole back of the car was taken up with the VCR machine and then your one tape. And oh, a terrible, terrible horror that we used to watch with my parents. Mm. I love all that old tech, though. All that old tech is so exciting to me. I mean, I think I'd love to write something set tech. in that period. But like, well, no, but you know, like because my, um, uh, I remember my granddad having a camcorder that was essentially a VCR in a box that had a handle, and then leading up to the camera unit as well, mm-hmm. and thinking how just how cool that was. You know, I, I loved all I love all that stuff so much. And again, like having young children now, like they they haven't got a clue. They can't understand that. Um, that things didn't used to be on demand. 
they can't mm. work it out at all. There, there are like literal meltdowns when the internet is down. Well, it's, I wanted to to write a wee bit about that culture, you know, that what it felt like at that time, um, how there was something kind of forbidden about it, and also um, about the the government response and the the, the moral panic that ensued in the eighties, yes. the video nasty moral yeah, panic. Yeah, yeah. And um, so the, the book deals with that, and to some extent, Millicent, one of the reasons she ends up sentenced to such a, a, a long time was is because uh, there's this climate of hysteria and. Um, there was a, a need for um, scapegoats, really, at, at the time. I mean, people went to jail just for uh, who, who ran video shops because they were renting out movies that had been put on the Dex Prosecution's banned list. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's an amazing documentary about it by um, I think by Jake West uh, called "Video Nasties: um, Moral Panic and Censorship." I think it's called. It's and you look up something called "Video Nasties: The Complete Guide." is the name of the box set, and it's got all sorts of material in there. Um, but I wanted to write about that um, that culture at the time, but also about a time when you couldn't verify information quickly. So that's how myths develop around a film. Yeah. People would now, if you, you could very quickly find out that some story about a film was complete rubbish. Whereas mm. back then, you would hear these rumours about something, and, and you couldn't verify one way or another. There'd be some old magazine article that was... Uh, the source of what what information you could find. So I wanted to write about that as well. That sense of the the forbidden, that sense of trying to search for movies. Uh, as you say, it's nowadays anything you want to find. If you can't find it to stream online in twenty seconds, it probably isn't available anywhere. It doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, it's that it's that sort of interesting. I remember when I was at uni in the um, early, very early nineties. Um, and everybody was like, I, oh, you know, there's this movie I spit on your grave, and there was, it, there were a whole, you know, it's a whole bunch of those things that were banned and therefore really amazing. And you're like, they're not amazing, they're just shit, <laughs> but they're banned, so they're really amazing. And all of the people in the media course were trying to recreate those, uh, those video nasties, which is basically where they'd come out of, you know, it's just, it's, it's a fascinating. It's a completely fascinating era. I agree totally. I, are you okay, Chris? Yeah, it's just, I think it's a very noisy motorbike went past and a <laughs> condenser microphone and it seemed to pick up all this and it just got louder and louder and louder and something I looked and I was thinking, I thought for a second you, one of you had put something on a kind of sharing screen thing that involved, it sounded like the rising score on a horror film just for a moment. <laughs> oh, Jesus. I thought you had, uh, I thought there had been a terrible outbreak of flatulence behind you. <laughs> and you were checking to see whether it had been picked up on the microphone. Just seen if any of the microphone settings help with that. But, um, <laughs> no, all... I, I, I remember the, um, uh, when I went to film school um, in early 2000, it was, uh, early 2000, sorry. And um, they had a VHS library and it was full of all of that stuff. Um, and it was like, I went on this like mad voyage to try and get a hold of all the video nasties I could because they'd been so pilloried in the press growing up that um, I went hunting and yeah, you get a lot of varying quality in that period as well, don't you, for sure. But yeah. I think, I think like, I'm, I would. I always think this, and we're going into a chat about the wider cinema here. But I always think, like, if you, I will, I will let any kind of shonky effect get away with it, if the story backs it up, and if the story works, you can get away with so much with me if the story works. Um, 
So but anyway, that's a, a wider question. Sorry. No, but just practical effects, though. Even though oh, some yeah. of them were, some of them would work, or some wouldn't. And I think the the lower um, visual quality meant that you couldn't always see. Yes. Um, the, how the effects were done, whereas it would be less forgiving now in sort of HD. Super but HD. That was. Yeah. yeah. Whereas at the time, uh, it was, well, that, that's the, this, one of the things I wanted to write about. You know, I wanted to write about the ingenuity of creating these mm. illusions. And that's why Millicent, uh, it, she is a special effects makeup artist. So her, her job was to create these gory illusions. Um, and, and so it's an excuse to write about that because it's something I've kept coming back to, with, whether it was things like the sacred art of stealing or snowball in hell, writing about illusions, about magic. It's the yeah. same thing. It's, it's the, the same principles of conjuring and um, illusion that, that are used for practical effects. It was reminiscent for me of the sort of the 1930s illusionists and the, you know, the sleight of hand and the, and the you know, just trying to use your wit and understanding of human perception to outwit your audience. And I, I just, I, I love that, that intelligence in a character that you almost immediately go, there's no problem. She's going to solve this mystery <laughs> because she's smart enough to outwit everybody. So we're fine. It's, it's an, it's amazing um, piece of, of, of characterization. I thought with Millicent. Thank you. <laughs> this is a tale of the supernatural. The Tapes, a podcast of the uncanny. Do you believe in ghosts? Join me, host Christopher Goldie, and guests as we discuss the best in unsettling television and film. Who is this? Who is coming? Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Search for at The Tapes Pod, part of the Pod Dojo Network. To look at a, a, your career in a wider picture, Chris, but something I always think of when I look at your body of work is variety um, and the fact that you seem to, and it's certainly something that I aspire to, is is that, no, I want to write about that and you will write about it. You know what I mean? And it, it's just like, I always get, and when I listen to you um, and when we've spoken on, on previous interviews and stuff, I always get that impression that it's like, no, my, my interest is hooked here and I want to write about that. And is that how you go about picking your projects? I think so. Um, you know, you're never quite sure where the idea is going to come from and, and how it's going to hook you. Uh, but I think it, it like comes back to the research question. People are asking how you research something. I always find it's easier if you decide to write about something you already know about so you don't have to do much research. <laughs> you know, that your research is, is, is the, the, the years before when you spent time reading about something just because you were really fascinated by it. And you weren't reading it for research, you were reading it just because it was interesting. And that way you've got a kind of grounding in the subject. But I suppose as a part of you, as, always, as soon as something's intriguing, there's a wee part of my brain thinking, how can I turn this into a story? Um, so that, there's, that definitely comes into play. Um, I mean, I remember when I became fascinated with uh, the investigations into the paranormal, and I read everything I could get my hands on with regards to that. And there was a point where I just suddenly thought, this is so fascinating. But sometimes you read something that's fascinating and think, well, I don't see how this fits into a narrative. But with the paranormal stuff, what I realised was this is detective fiction because it's all about investigating how somebody is perpetrating a fraud. Mm. Um, because, you know, it's, 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 well, 
to some extent you're talking about creating an illusion but it's a fraud because it's the the psychics and mediums are trying to tell you it's not an illusion they're trying to tell you i am in touch with the other side so, um, <laughs> i think it's an that, incredible the thing that that's like that the, the I, I worked on seven series of most haunted and it, <laughs> what what i <laughs> and we did the we did the lives in those uh, the seven series of lives and um what was fascinating was that it, it's it hit an audience square bang in the middle of um people who believed and people who just thought it was an absolute rip-roaring laugh to watch mm -hmm. and and <laughs> and they both enjoyed it with the same kind of passion and would come along to the lives and you know i mean like you know again you're back to the sort of pure oil. we're on hampstead heath searching for dick on the day we were looking for, <laughs> for dick whittington and everybody's like Ooh, yeah we were all searching for dick oh god um <laughs> And, I always forget that, Sean, that you were on that show for seven years. That's incredible. Yeah, no, there was incredible, a, but it was an eye opener. But it, but what it is, it's exactly what you're saying, Chris. Is that um, it's just a mystery, and everybody wants to explain the unexplainable, and the and 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 even when you've worked on it for ages, and you're like, it's collective shit up. You know, it's collective shit up because you've spent all day in a pub, being told ghost stories from every single local resident who's ever seen or heard anything ghostly ever. And then you spend the night there with all the lights turned off and you're shooting everything in zero lux. So everything's sort of green and a bit fuzzy and the coffee machine comes on, the red light fucks up and everybody's screaming and bang, you've got your trailer. There's no ghosts, but you're done. Show's done. <laughs> but you, and did you ever see anything doing that that you couldn't explain? Well, I couldn't explain why certain of the psychic mediums wanted to press their genitalia against the leaded windows, but that's not a <laughs> that's not something that could be aired anyway. But it did make people scream, which was good for the trailer. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, I, I I couldn't say one way or the other. It would be <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure there might have to be some after 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 recording discussions on this one. I think because I, oh. I always forget about that. We never talk about it. The shocker. And <laughs> <laughs> um, this, sorry, the question of research ties in neat, neatly, kind of, if I do a, a seamless segue to a question. We have some quest questions from listeners for you, Chris, if that's okay. Um, this one is from Louise Fairbairn, who, oh, it's lovely to uh, have you, well, have your words with us tonight, Louise. Um, Louise would like to know, what's your, Chris, favourite random fact about James Simpson you and Marissa uncovered in the research for the Ambrose Parry novels? Mm. The segue here being research. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent, Rob. Well done. Thank well, you. Good question. And, uh, yeah, I know Louise very well. Uh, yeah. So hi, Louise. Um, it's well, there's, there's quite a, a wealth of little nuggets of information, all of which Marissa has uncovered. But the, a couple that really stick in the mind is that um, Simpson was notorious for, you know, he, he was he grew up in very um, modest circumstances. He was the son of a baker. Um, but he made quite a bit of money uh, in, in medicine quite quickly. And, and but he was someone who clearly, once he had enough money, he wasn't pursuing it and it didn't really mean anything to him. And on one occasion, it turned out that it was the, the butler would find these things. He'd found that Simpson had stopped a, 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 a window sash from rattling by putting a rolled up £10 note in it. So and, and you think what ten pounds would have been worth in the eighteen forties, <laughs> and he'd see a rolled up ten pound note just just to stop the window rattling, but also um, Simpson would go around 
uh, he was a great um, amateur archaeologist. He was really interested in archaeology. In fact, we've got a, there's a scene in the new book um, about his interest in archaeology. But he would go around sites and he'd find little things like old arrowheads and, and things like that. But it turned out he would wrap them in high denomination notes so that the butler didn't chuck them out when he went through his pockets because one of the butler's jobs was to go through his pockets because he would he would go to, to do clinics or go and um perform uh, operations for people and they'd pay him but he'd forget you know so he'd, he'd have the money in his pocket he'd hang up his coat and just forget about the money and the butler one of his jobs was to go and get the money but so he knew that if the if the arrowhead he had found uh, in some field was wrapped in a 10 pound note the butler would would know from doing that, that he wanted to hang on to the arrowhead. It wasn't just to get chucked in the bin. It's brilliant. <laughs> Superb. Uh, Louise actually has another, um, a second part to her question is, well, it's it's an entirely another direction. She'd like to know, are we going to get another Jack Parlebane novel at some point? Oh, inevitably. Um, but I, I don't have immediate plans. Um, I mean, the new Ambrose Parry book will be out in August, so that's all done. Um, I'm writing another standalone novel at the moment. Uh, what happens after that? Well, we've got the next Ambrose Parry book. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know what that's dealing with, actually. Uh, that's Marissa's got oh, well, already a wealth of material uh, that we're going to look into. But yeah, I think Jack will be back. <laughs> oh, um, fabulous. He, he's never been away for that long. I, I don't know how many books in a row ever gone without writing about them. It probably is the longest run at the moment simply because I've been so prolific in the last few years. Yeah. It helps if there's two of you, I must say. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, on that topic of, uh, um, you said Marissa had a lot of material on that one already. Um, the lovely Marion Todd would like to know, um, the level of technical detail in Want You Gone, hacking, etc., was outstanding. How do you know so much about this stuff? <laughs> <laughs> this always sounds like a loaded question. Yeah, <laughs> I've had that a number of times. <laughs> yeah. I, I, essentially, it comes down to always having a fascination with kind of computer culture and what you might call what you I would call hacking culture, because hacking culture didn't always mean what it means now. Um, hacking culture just one point one time referred to kind of just computer enthusiasts uh, and people who like tinkering. Um, with code or tinkering with with the machinery of it, and I, my involvement with computers goes right back to the early eighties and getting at a ZX Spectrum, you know, one of the one of the first ones, uh, rubber keys and and and, and friends with a ZX eighty one, you know. So we, I was I was sort of into the kind of whole computer geeky culture at, way way back then, and I watched it evolve, um, and I, also and when. I first got a PC in the, the sort of mid nineties and got very into the, the sort of putative or like burgeoning early days, the online culture of gaming at the time, which was mostly, mostly online gaming was, was around Quake uh, and Quake mm. 2. And so you, you tinkered with stuff all the time, but, but again, you're, you're staying in touch with this. And I think that was the technical side of it, but the other side of it was just always a fascination with what we've just talked about. Um, the psychology of illusions. And to me, it was kind of the same. Um, and, and heist stories, I always loved heist stories. To me, heists and hacks are the same thing. It's all it's all works on the same principles. And I wanted to write a story that pulled all that together. So I, I did some research in terms of, like, I read quite a few books about things like um, 
anonymous and um, lulsec and the, the, the some of the, the sort of um, online cyber activism of the, the sort of mid two thousands and things like that. But um, really, it was just a combination of all these factors and. And also being really paranoid about my personal security, <laughs> you know, and, and thinking, you know, as a crime writer, you're always thinking of how could you manipulate someone? How could you con them into giving you information they shouldn't? And that's why you get you get to admire it when it's being done by a hacker. Uh, so it's, it, I've, I've never actually hacked anything. Um, obviously, I would say that. I'm not very technically adept. <laughs> but the, I think the thing that fascinated me about it that I was able to write about and want you gone is that, People think hacking is all about computers and it's all about code. And it's not. It's all about getting someone to tell you their password so that you don't need to <laughs> fart about with code. <laughs> it's all about social engineering. Yeah. <laughs> At the end of the day, it's just how can I trick you into thinking I'm a person that you can let in or how can I get on your network the easy exactly. way? Get the, get the most random um, you know, receptionist who's there on a on a work experience day who's connected to the wi-fi find her instagram get her yeah. password and bing bang bong you're into the biggest In company incrementally yeah <laughs> incrementally it's like you get one little bit so that that lets you get the next level of security mm. that and it builds and, and one of the things i wanted to write about and what you go on is that that perception the stereotype of the computer geek being uh, socially inept when actually the hacker is socially adept because the hacker has to be really good at reading people to get and really into good at being people. That's what I've being people in, um, yes. in the code. <laughs> they just um, and I, I spent ages um, researching the code and working with hackers, and my entire perception of hackers changed because everybody I met was um, more sociable, more personable, and. Um, could psychoanalyze the arse off you in about two <laughs> seconds. And I was just like, I was just expecting sort of the guy from IT, um, <laughs> which is unfair because I, you know, I like you, you know, I was Commodore 64 and spent one summer of my childhood, three, three weeks. I think I spent programming in C basic, my Commodore 64 to play the tune of Michael rode the boat ashore. <laughs> and, I, and then and then hit run. 30, 30, I think ninety pages of, of C plus code. Yeah, that's me, man. And 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 I hit run and it went dee 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 dee. And I was like, "There's not even a fucking hallelujah. I'm not meant for this shit." <laughs> Three weeks of hanging out in the sun and playing on my bike that I've just ruined. I didn't even get a hallelujah. I'm fucking out. So I knew I was never going to be a hacker, but I was always fascinated by, um, yeah, just that that life and that lifestyle and that that understanding of how people work and as social media has evolved. And I remember talking to one of them, uh, that one of the guys who's who had been um, tried and convicted and had, had done some terrible stuff, but was just like, but. Everybody complained. Everybody was protesting. Everybody was up in arms about ID cards and you're not having my photo and my date of birth on the same document. And you know, back in the 90s, and then nobody wanted ID cards to be brought in. And then Facebook pops up, and then every fucking thing about you is on the internet <laughs> for any old turd to read. But no, there's no way that in my pocket I'm going to have a photo ID mm. with my date of birth and my address on it. You know, 
Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But you'll give every other thing, all of your family members, the f- details of where your friends work, everything away. Everybody mm-hmm. tickling away on their which polar cat are you? Games. <laughs> and you're like, well, this is basically this is just us harvesting your information. Go ahead, fill out the quiz. <laughs> I, I, my, I get a. a thing with infinity i can't think about infinity so i can't you know because it's just too big for me to contemplate and the idea of the the literal black hole of information that we're funneling into facebook all the time i don't necessarily i don't mean us three i just mean the, the wider human population of all of that kind of stuff and what pictures are building up i get that same feeling like whoa you know that kind of thing i can't i have to cut i have to stop um but I'm going to carry on with another seamless segue because we've got another question. See that? I'm, I'm learning it. Chris is usually the man who keeps us in track, but um, we've got Chris Scotland, a big fan and friend of the podcast, who says, Chris when bringing Sadar. back... Yeah. When bringing back a recurring character, how much backstory can you recall and how much rereading of your own work is involved? Oh, it, you know, that it, it all depends on how long it's been since the last book, I suppose. Um, when it... <laughs> When I wrote, um, I wrote three Parlabain books pretty much back to back, uh, and that was a bit easier because I was kind of rebooting the character. But it is tricky. Uh, when I wrote um, a Snowball in Hell, that's one of the few occasions when I have actually reread one of my own novels after you know it's it's been published. Obviously, you've you know you you read your own novel several times at editing and proofing stages, but. Mm. Um, I had to reread The Sacred Art of Stealing because it was about five or six years after that that I was writing A Snowball in Hell. And it was, it was eye-opening to actually remind myself about who the characters were. But it was good because enough time had passed. I didn't want to just be writing the next episode. You know, I wanted to feel like the, the, the characters would have moved on and developed in the meantime. Um, I, I suppose... What, what freaks me out is that I'm doing events and people remember things about my characters that I don't, you know, so they'll ask me something about it and I'm like, I've no idea. And and I think perhaps people f- forget that they read this book last month and I wrote it 10 years ago. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. In fact, somebody, somebody had uh, my novel, well, it was the Parliament novels as their specialist subject on Mastermind. No so, way. And um, I think they got more than me by, you know, <laughs> by several, <laughs> several points. I'm sitting watching this thing, and I wonder how I'll do here. You know, that's that's got to be one of the like. I mean, we've not had anyone on this show, Sean, who was, who's been the subject of a mastermind. I've never, I've never had anyone be the subject of. I've, I've had, uh, I've talked to somebody who was the subject of a pointless question, but that was, um, <laughs> that was less less good for them because it meant that nobody knew them. <laughs> if you're a pointless yeah. answer on a pointless question, then. <laughs> You know, basically, notoriety <laughs> hasn't struck. <laughs> um, we, we have one more question from the internet ether, which is from our good friend Dan Stubbings. Hi, Dan, who asks, how the hell did uh, you come up with the ending for Black Widow? Because, Jesus, it was a masterpiece. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> that was true. That was brilliant. Oh, thank you. Um, I honestly can't remember. You know, I, I think... <laughs> Well, I suppose with the, this kind of thing, you, you start with the ending. You know, you start with the thing that's to be revealed. Um, and I can't really say much more than that because when you're creating something that is so 
uh, spoiler sensitive. I mean, I, I, I have um, I two ambitions with that book, which I, I was able to realize. Uh, and one was, and this, this is going to make it seem like we planned this. I mentioned way back in our discussion, I mentioned uh, Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency. Mm-hmm. And ever yeah. since reading that, it's a novel that I read and then immediately reread because it, it was it was so it's such a great premise. But when you read it a second time, it was like reading another book, as if it's certain things in it had been written for those who'd read the book already and would see yeah. scenes from a completely different perspective. And I always wanted to write a book that you could read again and every scene would feel fresh because you were seeing it with fresh eyes. And that's what I feel like I did with Black Widow. And obviously it's what you find out. I don't like twists in books where it's just new information. I think the best twist is a twist that changes how you perceive all the information that's there already. Especially yes. if you suddenly think, God, I wasn't cheated. It was all right there. And it was right in yeah. front of the characters as well as in front of the reader. But the other ambition I had, I can't say what that was because it's a huge spoiler. <laughs> but I did that as well. <laughs> yeah, I I I really love that um, that Dirk Gently um, was such an influence because my first writing gig was with Douglas, and it, um, uh, he, I he was doing he'd been he'd set up a company to do the Hitchhiker's Guide online version, which was basically mm. the the um, the black box online, and he and he wasn't massively feeling it so he hired me and and my fr- well he had my friend neil who then hired me um to to sit and do it and we would just sit in a room and make all this stuff up and every now and then he'd come in and just be like this is great this is brilliant <laughs> not abstract enough and then just blow your mind with um with pure creativity and then go i can't do it guys you go ahead and then just walk out again and you'd be like Whew. That's a lot to live up to. Here we go. Here we go again. <laughs> from some, and it was amazing. just uh, incredible. And I mean, you know, he um, he passed away unfortunately before it it, it hit the ears. But um, when we did a PC game called uh, Starship Enterprise, um, which was also with him, that was also ridiculous. But in that phase before. Game consoles and everything came up when PC gaming was the thing, so it all sort of comes back around to that. It's just it's just having somebody who kind of understands writing and character and writing for the reader, writing for the audience, and not just knocking something out. He did um, text-only computer games back in the eighties. Well, didn't he? he did um, was not a game called Bureaucracy that he yeah. was responsible for. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, but all of it, and um, the, the, uh, he worked his company, uh, which was, um, you know, it was basically DNA. Uh, uh, it was, um, it was just a whole bunch of people who still are heavily invested in his estate, who were part of those original. And everything was burgeoning. I remember when we did Hitchhiker's Guide online. This, I'm sorry, it just sort of gets off tangent, but it was basically Wikipedia before Wikipedia. And then it was bought by the BBC. And the BBC were like, oh, no, you can't have... Because we had all these entries in Douglas's style, and then it opened up to a sort of crowdsourced encyclopedia of facts. So sometimes there'd be a description of table, which was a creature that would... Um, 
would freeze when any when anybody entered the room and would therefore seem static and would stay static and, and then would recumb would, would lie recumbent with its legs in the air when people weren't in the room and, and, and the BBC were like, no, people will think this is real. And you're like, no, well, you're just idiots. Because <laughs> now what you've done is you've censored it and made it into a dictionary, which is not what it is. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, like, and like it the, took the heart out of it, but it the was The meaning of life as well. Which, yeah, exactly. you know, the, there's actually, I still ha I think all the time of the things that were defined in the meaning of life. I will think of those concepts and remember the words for them. Yeah. And then use them as actual definitions. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> one, one I think of frequently is a lumness, which was the, the pleasing coolness on the reverse side of a pillow. Yeah. But do it's not, true, do there not should when, be a word for that. Do you not when you, be, I when bet you, the Germans have a word for it, I bet. <laughs> I bet they do. Yeah, but it's probably that seven words just squashed into one, into <laughs> yes, one cool-sided pillow. Yeah, you not when you when you turn it out when you turn your pillow over and you feel the, the pleasing coolness. Do you not just oh, go, yeah. Hmm, lumness? Uh, yeah, I I think of Douglas Adams every time I do that. <laughs> and actually, there's a whole section in the meaning of life about uh, corridor etiquette, about <laughs> how far along you have to pretend not to see someone, and then well, so that you can both look up at the same time. <laughs> welcome to the BBC. <laughs> <laughs> oh, very um, cool. Yeah, no, uh, I, it, it is it, absolutely charming and inspirational. I'm, I'm honoured. What, uh, what are you reading at the moment, Chris? Um, nothing. I'm sorry to say because I, I'm in the middle of writing a novel, so I, I, I don't read any fiction while I'm, I'm writing. Oh, wow. Um, I just find it too distracting. Um, it's like... Something that's got a narrative voice, I don't want that in my head because mm. any time in between I'm thinking about my own story and I'm thinking about those characters. So, I mean, I had the pleasure of a complete glut of reading uh, in the, the the months leading up to Christmas before I started really properly developing this. Um, but so I, I'm trying to think what I've, I've read of late that I absolutely loved was um, probably the, most recently the, the new... Uh, Mick Heron book, Slough House, which was oh, yeah, absolutely yeah, brilliant. brilliant. And also the fantastic um, oral history uh, of the movie Dazed and Confused oh, um, interesting. called All Right, All Right, All Right. Uh, and I can't remember the author's name, which is terrible, but um, it was brilliant. Absolutely fantastic. I mean, wow. obviously, you've got to be a big fan of Dazed and Confused. I'm not going to give a fuck, but it was... Uh, it was absolutely fantastic. It was one of those years thinking, I'm going to be reading this book every five years for the rest of my life, you know. Um, and yeah, so if there's yeah. a book like that comes along. That's uh, amazing. Well, what about you, Sean? What are you reading at the moment? I've just, uh, I've been doing, uh, reading a whole lot of submissions for Red Dog. So, uh, I, and I just uh, finished uh, this, at lunchtime today, I finished one called New Brighton by Helen Trevorrow, um, which is going to, uh, I think by the time this episode comes out, we'll have announced that we've signed her because fuck me, it's a good book. <laughs> Fabulous, it's, man. Um, Fabulous. It's, it's like The Handmaid's Tale meets The uh, Hunger Games, but set in Brighton. And it's, 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 <laughs> it's, it's bastard brutal, but brilliant. And yeah, no, bastard brutal, but brilliant. There you go. My that's it. That's that's the one up on the top of the uh, on the top of the book there on the jacket. Bang that on that. Oh, Bast well, you... Bastard Brutal, <laughs> yeah. but brilliant. Set in Brighton. Yeah. Based in Brighton. Uh, I've got five Bs. 
<laughs> well done. Uh, for my for myself, I'm um, just reading uh, Russ Thomas's Night Hawking, Ooh. which is the sequel to uh, Fire Watching that came out last year, um, and it's superb. Um, it's, it would be. Um, it, it's almost at the point of um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like it's so acutely enjoyable to read. Um, that I keep finding myself um, making excuses to sneak a couple of pages here and there, you know, like, don't worry, children, I'm just going to go, I'll go and get, you know, I'll go get the ice lollies, don't worry. And the book is by the freezer, <laughs> ready for me to sneak a couple of pages. So it's, uh, yeah, and by the time this comes out, that will be out. So uh, happy publication day, Russ, as well. Super Funny. stuff. And um, we've had you for an hour, Chris. <laughs> I know it's just jetted by. Um, thank you so much for your time. It's been uh, been brilliant. Thank you. Cheers. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks for joining. And, and sorry that we could only have one Chris in the room at any time. Mm. But um, yeah, thank thank God you jettisoned the other one. Otherwise, they would have been Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he did. He did send uh, text us his apologies. He said he can't even get on. Uh, Zoom at all, so he might be having a um, a difficult night. But um, and it's a shame as well because I know he was really interested and excited to talk to you about the cut as well. So, uh, Chris, you'll just have to tune in, mate. Mm-hmm.